I said this is one of the greatest prayers of repentance found anywhere in the Bible. It is a time when King David had sinned grievously and was being consumed by guilt. It's been said by many, both philosophers and theologians and thinkers, that guilt is probably the perennial problem of the human race and of mankind. And many have tried to capture it in writing or in theological treaties. I think one of the novels that captures this the best is Albert Camus, the French writer, who in his novel, The Fall, describes, the, I mean, the book is set in a, uh, a bar in Amsterdam. It's a, a lawyer who used to be a Parisian lawyer, a lawyer in Paris, and he is one night recounting uh, his past life to a stranger. He's confessing, so to speak. And the lawyer, his name is Clements, he's uh, talking about one night when he was in Paris years ago and he was walking across a bridge home one night and he saw a woman leaning against the railing and it looked like she was preparing perhaps to jump or commit suicide. He, uh, he thought it strange but he just kept walking because it you know, wasn't his business and suddenly he hears the body, her body hit the water, he hears screams. And he just keeps walking and ignores it and does nothing. And as years roll by, according to his confession in this bar, guilt begins to just consume him and overtake him. And at one point, he says to the stranger of his own guilt, Clement says, quote, a time came when I could bear it no longer, close quote. That is a good description of where David is at in Psalm 51. This is written during one of the lowest points in David's life. Psalm is about the time when he had committed adultery and then was confronted by a prophet and had to come to grips with what he had done. He not only committed adultery, he arranged for the death of his lover's husband and then guilt began to consume him because he tried to act as if nothing had happened. And finally comes this psalm of contrition and repentance, this heartfelt cry, created me a clean heart, O oh God. And it's a reminder. Here's what it's a reminder of. I mean, this, is, this is kind of like the gist of the sermon today, that God will forgive and cleanse and accept and welcome any who will humble themselves, fear him, and ask forgiveness. Historically, interestingly, Psalm 51 has often been recited by martyrs on their way to martyrdom. It is that kind of heft and weight in the canon of Scripture because of the uniqueness of a prayer of repentance. Let's see three things that David shows us here. One, he will talk about why we must confess. That becomes very clear as you look at the prayer, which is what this is. Secondly, he'll talk about what we must confess. And then thirdly, he'll talk about how we must confess, and he'll show us by example. So why, what, and how. So first of all, let's look at why we must confess. The background of the psalm, as I said, is King David's sexual sin with a woman named Bathsheba. This is found in 2 Samuel and uh, chapters 11 to 12. Notice the superscription, we call it. This is the small print in your English Bible above verse 1, what we call verse 1. The superscriptions, a lot of people wonder where these come from. Do the editors put them in? No, these are very ancient. In fact, some Hebrew scholars think they might have been part of the original text. So this superscription reads, For the director of music, a psalm of David, when the prophet Nathan came to him after David had committed adultery with Bathsheba. 
What's interesting is that the superscription here in the Hebrew Bible is actually the first two verses. I was looking at it again this week. In the Hebrew Bible, what we call verse 1 is actually verse 3. And the superscription is the first couple of verses. Now, after David committed adultery and arranged for the murder of his lover's husband, he acted again as if nothing was wrong. We've all done this, whether you're a Christian or not. We've committed a sin. We pretend like nothing happened, and off we go. And he refused to take ownership for his sin, even though, best we can tell, he violated or broke at least seven of the Ten Commandments in the whole process of committing adultery with Bathsheba. Finally, a prophet named Nathan comes to him, confronts him, and God gives David one of the greatest gifts he can give, and that is the gift of repentance, which it is a gift. And it brings us to the reason we must confess the whole why here, and here it is. Because we are sinners who need to be forgiven. Now, I'm going to nuance that just a bit, and I'm going to nuance it this way. If you are already a born-again Christian and you have committed your life to Christ and His Holy Spirit dwells within you, you may know you are justified. Justified not just for past sin or present sin, but all sin, future sin. You've been cleansed. So you may say, well, aren't I already forgiven? Why would I need to confess? And so for the believer, the reason is because fellowship needs to be restored. Much like when a spouse sins against a spouse or a child against a parent or parents against a child. It's not that they may not be forgiven, they probably would be, but there still needs to be ownership so that fellowship is restored. So for the believer, the issue is restoring fellowship. For the person not yet a Christian, it's for the need of forgiveness in the first place. Look at verse 1b, the second part. David cries out for two things. Mercy, obviously an acknowledgement that he needs forgiveness or he needs restoration, and for God to blot out his transgressions. Verse 1, have mercy on me, O God, according to your unfailing love, according to your great compassion. We're going to see some amazing affirmations of God's love and compassion in this psalm. In fact, as I was preaching at the first service, I was reminded again, this is one of the most love-filled, compassionate reminder psalms there is. Have mercy on me, O God, according to your unfailing love, according to your great compassion. Blot out my transgression. So interesting. In a psalm that talks so much about sin, you also have a psalm that talks so much about the love of God. But David is openly admitting what the scriptures testify here. Isaiah 59, 2, your sins have cut you off from God. Jeremiah 17, 9, the heart is desperately sick beyond cure. Romans 3, 23, all have sinned and miss God's standard. The, the verses go on and on and on. Uh, Our sin is painfully documented, empirically documented, over and over again in the Bible. Oswald Chambers, some of you know Oswald Chambers of his name and his devotional, my utmost for his highest. I used it last year as my devotional for that year. One point he writes this about repentance and ownership of our sin, like we see with David here. Quote, repentance always brings someone to this point. To say, I have sinned, the surest sign that God is at work is when we say this and mean it. Anything less than an open confession of sin is simply remorse for having made blunders, which is not repentance. 
Or one other voice from the ancient past, St. Augustine, from the 5th century, his autobiography, we call it the Confessions. It's a classic, it's a great spiritual classic. But at one point in describing his own sinfulness, you showed me how foul I was, twisted and dirty, full of stains and sores. I saw and I was horrified. And there was nowhere I could flee from myself. You ever felt like that? Can't get away from yourself. You confronted me with myself so that I might discover my sin and hate it. Hate it. That is one of the marks of coming to Christ is not just saying something, not just saying a prayer, or, but you come to grips that you actually hate what you used to love. You love what you used to hate. It's one of the signs of being truly born again. Notice something else David affirms, and I mentioned this, his theology of God here, God's love, his compassion is amazing. He acknowledges God's abundant love, his unfailing love, his willingness to forgive. And it's a reminder that we can't come to God, either to get saved or to reignite fellowship with him, until we remind ourselves or until we learn that he is merciful, that he is a God who is full of compassion. He is a God who is loving. One of the things we learn in the New Testament, which separates Christianity from all world religions, is that God is both infinite and personal, infinite and personal and loving. You don't see that in the world's religions. So that is why we must confess, either to get right with God in the first place and be saved, or to reestablish fellowship if we're already a believer but we've wandered into sin. Secondly, what we must confess. David here is very clear. After he committed adultery, sexual sin, he tried to run, he tried to hide from God, but God kept closing in and would not let him off a hook. And I believe the reason here is because David was a genuine believer. God's Holy Spirit lived in him and wouldn't let him go. And finally, God broke him and David quit running and he surrendered. And let me just add pastorally, there are probably some here this morning that are running and trying to hide something you have done. And the question is, are you ready to surrender? Are you ready to get right with God? Either to come back to Him, if you already are a believer, or if you've never been saved, to be saved and to be forgiven. Look at verses 2 and 3. David is very clear in his confession, in what he confesses. Wash away all my iniquity, cleanse me from all my sin. He says in verse 3, for I know my transgressions, and my sin is always before me. There's a heartfelt cry of repentance. My sin is always in front of my face. Against you, and you only have I sinned and done what is evil in your sight. Notice that word, evil. There's a word that gets thrown out of our cultural conversation these days, except that we're talking about somebody else, but usually not about ourselves. Here he's saying, I, I've done what is evil in your sight. So you're writing your verdict and justified when you judge. So David is very clear. In fact, in verses 2 and 3, interesting to note, he uses three different Hebrew words to describe his own wickedness, his own evil. He uses the word that we translate iniquity. He uses the word that we trans, uh, translate transgression. And he uses the word that we translate sin. And notice his ownership. Young people especially, would you notice... Notice his ownership here. Adults, all of us. He's very clear. 
my iniquity, my sin, or my transgression. There's no more blaming others. There's no more excuses. There's no more lies. And there's no more denials. He goes on, verses 4 and following. Against you and you only have I sinned, which is an interesting thing to say because he sinned against Bathsheba, he sinned against her husband and her family, but he understands, really, ultimately, he sinned against God. Against you and you only have I sinned, done what is evil in your sight, so you're right in your verdict, justified when you judge. Surely, I was sinful at birth, sinful from the time my mother conceived me. And yet you desired faithfulness even in the womb. You taught me wisdom in that secret place. Notice verse 7. Cleanse me with hyssop and I will be clean. Wash me and I will be whiter than snow. What is hyssop? Hyssop, some of you who have been to Israel may know. It's a small shrub that grows in Israel that can be used to dip in liquid either water or blood and to sprinkle. Priests would use it for symbolic cleaning. You can also use hyssop. You can grind it up. I didn't know this until we uh, actually found some one time. And uh, you can grind it up and it's used as a spice too in Israel. But that's what, that's what hyssop is. And hyssop is just a reminder of being sprinkled clean. I mean, that's, that's the, the visual imagery here. It's a symbolic imagery. But what is it doing? It's pointing to the New Testament and reminding us of Jesus cleansing us with blood if we know Christ is Savior. I mean, the, the connection dots here are very strong with the New Testament. So hyssop points to the sprinkling of blood and the cleansing that comes with that. In the Old Testament, the picture was used with animal blood. In the New Testament, we're told animal blood never did it. The perfect sacrifice was needed. And the point is Jesus died on the cross, and those who repent and believe are cleansed by his blood. Now, I don't know if you've ever heard a good explanation of the gospel. I don't know where you're at in your spiritual journey. This is what makes the gospel such good news. Let me just make sure it's very clear for all of us. The gospel tells us that Jesus did for us what we could never do for ourselves. The good news of the gospel, which is a bit redundant to say because the Greek word excel means good news. So the good news of the good news, but the good news of the gospel is not just that God is faithful to those who are faithful to him. That's not the good news. I mean, that's easy to do. The gospel is that Jesus came to deliver the faithless and moral failures like us. That's the gospel. The Bible declares Jesus died as an atoning sacrifice, a substitutionary sacrifice, and that when a person repents and believes on the Lord Jesus Christ, their sins are transferred to Christ, and His righteousness is transferred to them. The New Testament language is imputed, but that is how a sinful human being is justified and forgiven and washed clean. That is what we must confess, and he's very clear here. It's his iniquity, his sin, his evil, his transgression, and again, there's no more spin. There's no more denials. There's no more dodging. There's no more pretending like he didn't do anything. He mans up and he owns it. That brings us thirdly to how we must confess, and David's example here is powerful. The last part of this psalm shows us how we must confess, and let me just summarize it before we read it, with our whole heart. 
humbling ourselves before God. We see this in verses 8 and following. Let me hear joy and gladness. Let the bones you have crushed rejoice. Hide your face from my sins. Blot out my iniquity. Created me. Hebrew could be either a clean heart or a pure heart, O God. And renew a steadfast spirit within me. You can hear the personal anxiety in, in, you know, being let out here by David. I mean, this, he's all in with this confession. This is how real sin is confessed. This is how real repentance looks. Do not cast me from your presence or take your Holy Spirit from me. Restore to me the joy of your salvation and grant me a willing spirit to sustain me. Look at verse 17. Here you see it even clearer. My sacrifice, O God, is a broken spirit, a broken and contrite heart, O God, you will not despise. Ladies and gentlemen, young people, kids, the gospel is about finding peace with God and being restored to God through Jesus. And it comes with wholehearted, heartfelt repentance. So if you're here this morning and you're sitting there and you're thinking to yourself, man, have I messed up in life, my response to you is, welcome to the club. Welcome to the club. You are sitting with moral failures. There's a moral failure up here. We are a collection of moral failures. And anything less on a Sunday morning, we're just pretending. And the gospel and the good news is that Jesus said, I didn't come to call the righteous. I came to call the unrighteous. And that is why Jesus was accused of something that's a very interesting title. He was called a friend of what? Sinners. Yeah, it was a title that he didn't use himself, but it was an accusation against him because of the crowd he often hung around. The very first person that we know of that he openly revealed himself to as a Messiah was a woman who had had five failed marriages, five husbands, and was living with yet another man. We're going to come to her story shortly in John chapter 4. That's the first person we know of that Jesus openly revealed himself to as Messiah. That says a lot. And the very last person we know that he pardoned was a thief next to him on a cross that he was executed next to. Jesus says, come to me all who are weary. I will give you rest. I will give you rest for your souls. And so the evidence is overwhelming of God's willingness to forgive when we come in heartfelt repentance. Let us not also miss that after David repented, joy came back to his life. And he asked for joy. Verse 12, restore to me the joy of your salvation. Grant me a willing spirit to sustain me. One of the things both non-Christians, but especially even Christians forget, is the connection between obedience and joy. There's that connection over and over again in the Bible. There are two sides of one coin. Listen to a couple verses that I was looking at this week about the connection between obedience and truth and walking in holiness and joy. For example, Psalm 43, verses 3 and 4. Let your truth guide me, and then I will go to the altar of God, my joy and delight. Or John 15, Jesus says that those who walk in obedience will have his joy in them. Or John 17, Jesus says, I have come to give my disciples the full measure of my joy. Or Hebrews 12, 2, let us fix our eyes on Jesus, who for the joy 
set before him endured the cross. You might think that's an odd phrase to put both joy and crucifixion in the same sentence. And yet the Bible connects obedience, even obedience unto death, with joy. And one of the reasons I believe there's so little joy in so many professing Christians in the Western church is that they have forgotten, we've forgotten, I forget the connection between obedience and joy. Many professing Christians forget the joy that comes with confession and obedience. But the Bible reminds us joy is a byproduct of pursuing, of fighting for holiness, and that joy comes along with that. Let me cite a classic example of this, Pilgrim's Progress, written in 1678 by Pastor John Bunyan, who spent a lot of his time in jail for refusing to get a license to preach. Bunyan reminds us of his main character, Christian, who only made it to heaven through many labors, struggles, and fighting for the joy that was set before him. That's the only way he made it to the celestial city, was that he knew he had to go through labors and struggles and fighting for holiness. Why? For the joy that was set before him. And it's a reminder of something very important according to the Bible. And it's this, holy people are joyful people. That's something we forget. Joyful in their God. By the way, some of you know this, Pilgrim's Progress, Charles Spurgeon, pastor of the largest church on the planet 150 years ago in London, said that he read that book every year for his own spiritual health and his own spiritual maintenance. Last summer, Becky and I got to be in Kansas City, Kansas, and there's the Spurgeon Library there, and they have his copy of Pilgrim's Progress, and you can see it's not in good shape. <laughs> it was clearly well read, and the story seems to be very true. So, why do we need to confess? We either need to be forgiven or we need fellowship restored. And then what do we need to confess? We need to be honest. We get, David gets very specific. My sin, my iniquity, my evil. And then how do we need to confess? It's got to be heartfelt. It's got to come from the heart. It can't be casual. It can't be surface only. It needs to, and for some, there's emotion involved. Maybe tears, for some it may be loud, for some it may be quiet. That's not the point. The point is that it comes from the heart and that it's heartfelt contrition and repentance. All right, two questions as we close and prepare for the Lord's table this morning. And the two questions are these. First one is, and the first one is critical for all of us and it is this. Have you been forgiven by God? Have you found forgiveness with God? The good news of the gospel, the gospel is that no matter how many times you've blown it, no matter what guilt might be weighing you down this morning, no matter what great sin or evil or wickedness you may have done, you think that nobody else knows about, the gospel is that there is forgiveness at the cross if you will come and humble yourself and seek God and cast yourself on His mercy. God is waiting to forgive and infuse you with a joy if you will humble yourself before Him. Who cry out, verse 10, Create in me a clean heart, O God. I love Isaiah chapter 30, verses 18 and 19. Hear this. Isaiah 30, chapter 30, verses 18 and 19. Yet the Lord... Now let this soak in. The Lord longs to be gracious to you. He rises to show you compassion. 
how gracious he will be when you cry for help. Does that sound like a stingy God? As soon as he hears, he will answer you. That's our God. Friend, hear the sinner's cry in the famous hymn from Fanny Crosby, great hymn writer. Some of you know these words, but I love the, word, the, 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 the chorus when she says, Pass me not, O gentle Savior, hear my humble cry, while on others thou art calling, do not pass me by. That's the heart of someone who's ready to get right with God. Pass me not, O gentle Savior, hear my humble cry, while on others thou art calling. Do not pass me by. Second question as we end, and that is this. Have you forgiven others? The gospel calls us not only to seek forgiveness, but to make sure we forgive others. Psalm 51 also calls on us to make sure we are forgiving others. There are some here this morning, probably all of us, we've been sinned against. Some of us have not forgiven it can be parents, it can be pastors, it can be friends, it can be relatives, it can be, I mean, the list goes, colleagues, schoolmates, neighbors, the list goes on and on. And the issue is, you know, nursing a grudge, holding a grudge, brings a certain amount of emotional satisfaction and energy at times, but the problem is it's short-lived, it's short-term, and it poisons the soul. And the Bible says there can be no peace with God until we have forgiven those who have sinned against us. One of the things Becky and I have noticed over the years, and maybe you've noticed it, is how many professing Christians are bitter and seems to accumulate as they get older. The call of the gospel, friends, is to forgive those who have wounded us, abused us, betrayed us, misused us, lied about us. And by the way, something I like to remind, and I keep trying to make sure I say this, that doesn't mean pretending like what they did was it really wrong? That's an important thing. Quite to the contrary. The phrase that we use around here, and I continue to use it, remember, forgiveness is an act of blame. It's an act of blame. It's not pretending like something didn't happen to you. It's saying, what you did was wrong, and I'm letting it go. Because in the gospel, I am forgiven. And that's the whole pattern of the gospel. It is a decision. It's a decision not to let a wrong dominate us anymore. That is what forgiveness is. And to forgive as Christ has forgiven us, that is what grace is all about. And that, friends, is what the gospel is all about. And that is what the sacrament is a reminder of.